Michael. Might have used another one. Word of God reads as follows. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. They raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Bezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. May the Lord God sanctifies through his word. His word is truth. God has been read in our hearing. Let us pray this morning that it would be effectual in our hearts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask this this day that indeed you would bring us once again and anew to the cross of Christ. That we would glory in Calvary. And all the wonders, all the pain, and yet all the victory that was wrought there for your glory and for the good of your people. Remind us again, O Lord, the beauty of Christ in his suffering, in his death. And in his resurrection and ultimate victory, bring us anew to Calvary. Father, we do pray that in doing this, we would see Jesus. And we would glory in him alone. That we would give him the praise and the honor that is due his name. So come now by your spirit. And open our hearts and our minds and our eyes that we would behold the Christ and worship him. In Jesus' name, amen. Indeed, we've, uh, we have arrived at the end of chapter 8 of Judges. We have been going through the life of Gideon. We have come to the end of Gideon's life. And what... A tale it has been. As we said at the beginning of Gideon's life, at the beginning of chapter 6, we come now to the end of chapter 8, that we know as much about Gideon as we know about any of the judges. 
Between Gideon and Samson, we have a most detailed account of their lives. And we see Gideon in his ups, and we see Gideon in his downs. We have seen Gideon at his best. And now, as we get to the end of his life, we see Gideon at his worst. You know, the the testimony of Scripture and even the lives of the saints of God throughout the history of redemption is that one of the most difficult things to do in life is to end well. Just to finish well. I think the writer of Psalm 71, which is probably David, understood this very well. For he writes, So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. And unfortunately, we read in the scriptures and we see the testimony of the saints in the Bible and we see just the opposite. Oftentimes, too often, on comfort. We see just the opposite. We see them getting to the end of their lives and we witness with them a loss of faith or, or at least a loss of integrity. See it with Noah. See it with Moses. We see it with David. We see it with Hezekiah. Just to name a few, and even in the New Testament, we see it with Demas. Most of us, I am quite sure, know people who at one time seemingly walked with the Lord and had a heart that was set on fire for the things of God and even in the ministry. But at some point, toward the end, they turned. They turned away from the things of God. They turned away from the will of God and turned back to the world or at least turned toward worldliness. It's tragic. It's tragic. And we see it here in the life of Gideon. Gideon does not finish well because Gideon is hypocritical. He is duplicitous, you might say. And the duplicity of Gideon is a warning to us all this morning. What do we mean by that term, duplicity? Well, we mean this. It is being deceitful in speech. It is being deceitful in conduct. It is speaking or acting in two different ways concerning the same matter with the intent to deceive. It is, essentially, it is double speaking. It's what it is. It's double speaking. And so we see in Gideon this this character in contradiction, that he, in in essence, is a character in contradiction. But so are we all in some degree, are we not? Characters 
in contradiction in this sense, we see our own lives in Gideon. In fact, I believe it is far too comfortable for us to see ourselves in Gideon's lives, in Gideon's life, and even see ourselves and begin to wonder. And we see this character in contradiction on the one hand. He is a man of valor. He is a mighty warrior judge who leads Israel to victory over their wicked enemy. But then on the other hand, on the other hand, he is this duplicitous leader who though he seems not to want to be king, he assumes the rights of royalty and lays the foundation for apostasy once in the land again. As we look at the end of Gideon's life, we see clearly these contradictions. We see the hypocrisy. We see the the contradictions. We see the duplicity. And yet this morning, I want to instruct us. I think the Bible would have us to know that we should look beyond the life of Gideon and see our own lives, but then even in seeing our own lives and the contradictions there and the duplicity there, and even look beyond our lives and see Christ. And see the glories of Calvary. Indeed, Gideon is a study in contradiction. I think the Bible makes this very clear as we look at his life. On the one hand, he leads Israel into total victory. And then on the other hand, he leads Israel into a turning away. He leads Israel into this total victory. Notice what it says in verse 28 of chapter 8. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they, the Midianites, raised their heads no more. Here is the testimony to the faithfulness of Gideon, to the obedience of Gideon as he has walked faithfully with God into battle and God has given Gideon total victory over his enemies. And the victory is total. It is complete. It is final. You know, when God decides, when God decides to deal with an enemy, that enemy, that enemy will be no more. Now, you know that God doesn't always do it this way. He doesn't always deal with an enemy in such a way that that enemy is no more. But when he decides to do such a mighty and powerful work against his enemies or the enemies of his people when, and so that those enemies would be no more. Oh, what a mighty and awesome thing it is. We see it here. The nation of Midian is no more. The Midianites essentially are humiliated. They are humbled. They are destroyed beyond recognition. The Midianites are no more. No more. This is, this is so instructive to us concerning the nature of our God. 
The Midianites are no more. We know that they were once a mighty and terrible people. You recall when we were first introduced to the Midianites in this account with Gideon. In chapter 6 and verse 6, the Bible says that the Midianites brought Israel low. Humiliated them. Terrorized them. So humiliated and terrorized the Israelites that you might recall that they were hiding in caves. They're in the mountains hiding. They were threshing their wheat by night for fear that the Midianites would see them and come in and steal all of their resources and ravage them and take what little sustenance they had. They were a mighty army, numbered some 135,000. And with that army, they terrorized Israel. But here we see, at the end of chapter 8, the Bible says that Midian raised its head no more. The Midianites who had humiliated Israel now themselves, through Gideon, had been humiliated by God. And from now on, from now on, the Midianites would be but a footnote in the history of redemption. From never, never again in the scriptures will the nation of Midian be spoken of in any significant way. They're done. When God did battle with the Egyptians, he defeated the Egyptians, but he left the Egyptians. There's Egypt still today. When God did battle with the Philistines, he conquered the Philistines, but he left the Philistines in some kind of tack. When he did battle with the Babylonians and brought Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians low, He still left the nation of Babylon. But when God determined to bring the Midianites low, there are no more Midianites. It says they raised their head no more. Never again. Never again. This, this, this is instructive to us on two accounts. One, it reminds us that God is sovereign over nations. It reminds us that he is sovereign and control over all nations. The Bible reminds us of this in Acts chapter 17 and verse 26. Where the Bible says, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He determined, he determined their existence when they would come into existence and God has determined where those boundaries of that na- those nations would be and God has determined if those nations will continue to exist. The Midianites 
were a nation that existed because God determined that they would exist. And when God determined that the Midianites would exist no more, they ceased to exist. The Midianites oppressed Israel because God determined that they would oppress Israel. And when God determined that that oppression would stop, that oppression stopped. When God determined that that nation would be no more, it is an awesome and terrible thought. To know that nations rise and nations fall by the hand of our awesome God. When I was a young boy growing up here in America, the great enemy was the Soviet Union, the mighty and powerful Soviet Union. But now we do understand that once what that what was once considered a superpower is no more. There is no more Soviet Union. And now here, the United States is looked upon as a superpower in this world. But we do understand, beloved, that there is only one superpower. There's only one superpower in the world. There's only one superpower in the universe, and that is God Almighty and the United States itself. As arrogant and as powerful as it thinks it is, only 200 or so years old can find itself at the bottom of the rung if God would so determine it so. This is why we as the people of God, though we are in the world, we are not of the world. Though we have a nation and a government, we don't put our hope in horses. We don't put our trust in chariots, but we put our trust in the name of the Lord our God. He is sovereign over nations. And they rise and they fall at his command. This not only reminds us that God is sovereign over nations, but it also reminds us of this important truth that God will and God is making an end to all our sin. Where he says here that the Midianites raised their head no more. Here is an important truth, and it instructs us that when God determines to make an end of Israel's enemies, those enemies come to an end. And when God has determined to make an end to the enemies of his people, even their sin, those sins will be no more. The Bible reminds us that the days are coming and yet those days have already begun when Christ will bring all his enemies low. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 24 tells us that Christ is destroying, is destroying 
every rule, every authority, and every power. And he is putting that authority, putting that power under his foot. So that there is coming a day, beloved, and indeed it has already begun where there will be suffering no more. Where there will be pain no more. Where there will be tears no more. Where there will be fear no more. Ignorance will be no more. Because Satan will be no more. Death will be no more. Why? Because sin will be no more. Our God is making an end to all our sin. No more. That is the promise. No more. And when God's people see that their enemies are no more, the Bible here reminds us that there his people enter into a rest. A rest. Notice that the Bible says, and the land had rest. An undisturbed quiet, a blessed quietness, a holy quietness, a peace. For the first time, since the terror of Midian, the land of Canaan once again had rest. This is always the result of God's mighty victory on behalf of his people. His desire and his delight is to bring his people into trust in him where there is rest. There is peace. There's quiet. We saw this already in the book of Judges. We saw it with the victory of Othniel in Judges 3 and 11. We saw it after the victory of Ehud in Judges 3 and 30. We saw it again after the victories of Deborah and Barak in Judges 5 and 31. And we see it now as God has given Gideon the victory over the Midianites. The Bible says that once again the land has rest. This, this, this is the sign of God's victory among his people that they are at rest. This is a sign of a people who know the love and the mercy of Christ. And they are at rest. Their hearts are at rest. Their homes are at rest. Their minds are at rest. Why? Because Isaiah 26 and 3 reminds us that he will keep them at rest. He will keep them in perfect peace whose minds are stayed on him. Who do what? Who trust in him. This is the promise of Christ to his disciples 
In John chapter 14 and verse 27, he says, Peace I live, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is the desire of God for his people, that they would experience the victory and that victory would bring them to a place of rest. And that their minds are at ease. Their hearts are at ease. Their homes are at ease. And lives are at ease. Because their minds are stayed on Christ. But unfortunately, though that rest is available, few of us actually stay in it. As we see here, Gideon did not, and the nation did not. Unfortunately, this would be the last time in the book of Judges that this phrase would be used. This is the last time in the Judges where the Bible says the land was at rest. Why? Because of Gideon's duplicity. Because of Gideon's hypocrisy. But we see that Gideon, who led Israel to a total victory at the end of his life, leads, get, leads Israel to a turning away. See that in verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barit their God. When Gideon died, beloved, when Gideon died, because of his duplicity, the nation of Israel turned back to Baal. And the tragedy of it all is they are like the dog, the Bible says, who has returned to his vomit. And they forsake the rest of God and turn back to idolatry. You know, that there was a time after the victory that the land had rest, and it seemed like nobody enjoyed that rest any more than Gideon and his family. They enjoyed it to the hill. Gideon lived like a king. Many wives and concubines. Many children and many sons. Royal-like and a well-established family. In fact, Gideon names his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. For someone, for someone who does not want to be king, as he has said earlier, it is really strange and interesting that he would name his son, my father is king. Talk about doublespeak. 
Talk about saying one thing on the other hand and doing something on the other. Gideon had a large family and apparently had good fortune, but unfortunately didn't have a lasting faith. He didn't have a consistent faith. For Gideon is referred referred to by the name given to him in chapter 6 and verse 32, Jerubal which means let Baal contend with him. Ironically, ironically, the one who once contended with Baal is now leading the people back into the worship of Baal. It's because of his duplicity and his hypocrisy that the nation falls back into the worship of false gods. It would seem that because of his heroism and because of his strong personality that the nation of Israel had put their trust and confidence in Gideon. But it also would appear that Gideon did not turn that trust and confidence away from him and turn it back to God. He relished it. He absorbed it. And thus, the Bible says that when he died, they did not remember the Lord. Oh, beloved, those are some heart-wrenching words. They did not not remember the Lord. Forgetfulness is a contagious and a deadly disease. It's contagious. It's contagious because when one generation forgets, the next generation rejects. And here is Gideon showing us that when one generation forgets, the next generation suffers. And the reason the nation failed to remember the Lord is because Gideon failed to remember the Lord. You know, at the, re- at the root of all of our falling into sin, at least most of it, is our forgetfulness. We just forget. We, we forget God. Most of our issues in our lives are around this idea of forgetting. And we all forget. That is a malady that is across the board to all of us. We forget. In fact, God knows this, and God is gracious, and God is merciful. He knows how prone we are to forget, and his grace and his mercy to us is that he gives us signs, and he gives us reminders of his grace and mercy. Just as my wedding ring, 
just as my wedding ring is a sign and a reminder of my marriage. It is a sign to others that I am married. It is a reminder to me that I am married. So God has given us signs. So God has given us reminders. He has given us the waters of baptism as a sign to those watching that I belong to Christ. It is a reminder to me that I have been buried with Christ and that I have been risen with Christ unto new life. It is a reminder to me, just as I have been baptized in the water, so I have been baptized with the Spirit of Christ. It is a reminder to me, just as I go down into those waters and I am washed, so it reminds me that I have been washed by the water of Christ, regenerating Spirit, and I am His. Remember your baptism then. It's not only that he's given us a sign of baptism and a reminder of baptism, but he has given us a sign and the reminders of the Lord's table. That as I take those elements into my hands, I am reminded that this is the bread that represents the body that was broken for me. It's a reminder in the cup that that cup says that this is the blood, the blood that was spilled for me. These remind me that I am Christ and Christ is mine. Remind me that I am his and I can taste and see And be reminded just how good the Lord is. Remember your baptism. Remember the confession Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Remember the confession that you made in the presence of many witnesses. Remember. Remember his body broken for you. Remember the blood that has been shed for you. Here is an admonition to us this morning, beloved. We must never forget. You know why people don't finish well? It's because they forget. We don't finish life well. Because we forget. We don't finish our marriages well. Because we forget. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years in, and people want to split up. They want a divorce. Why? Because they forget. Forget the confession that they made in the presence of many witnesses. They forget that they vowed before God and the watching world. They forget. They forget that they said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, for sickness and in health. They forget. They don't finish well. The the reason why many of us won't finish this week well because we'll forget. We'll forget the songs that we sung today. We'll forget the communion table. We'll forget the word of God as it was read. We'll forget the prayers that were prayed. And we won't finish this week well. 
There's a reason why many of us won't even finish this day well. Because we'll forget. Oh, beloved, by the end of this day, many of us will forfeit the grace that is rightfully ours. Because we will forget. We'll walk out those doors into a world and we'll forget that we belong to Christ. We'll forget that he has shed his blood for us. We forget that he loves us more than anything in the world can possibly love us. We'll forget. I am here to remind us this morning, don't forget. Don't forget who God is. Don't forget that you serve a sovereign God, that he is control of all situations, that he's not only sovereign over nations, but he's sovereign over your life. Don't forget. Don't forget that no matter what somebody does or what somebody says, God is going to work it all out for your good. And don't let it turn you away from God. Don't forget that he is sovereign. Don't forget that he's in control. And don't forget that he loves you. And then don't forget who you are. Don't forget that you're a sinner. Don't forget that you are a sinner. Don't forget that your heart is prone to wander. Don't forget that. And always, every moment of every day, throw yourself back on the grace of God. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget that you're a sinner, but don't forget that you're saved. Don't forget that you're saved. Don't forget that your mind is being renewed. Don't forget that you are not to be conformed unto this world, but that you are being transformed. Don't forget that. Don't forget who God is. Don't forget who you are. And most importantly of all, don't forget what God has done in Christ Jesus. Don't forget, this is the most dangerous memory lapse of all. We just forget what God has done. But that is why we come every Sunday. We are here to remind you not to forget. That's why we sing the songs that we sing, so that you won't forget the gospel. That's why we don't play with frivolous things. Because you need to be reminded, and I need to be reminded, of who Christ is and what he has done. That's why we preach the way we preach. So that we don't forget who Christ is and what Christ has done. Oh, beloved, our prayers should always be, Lord, lead me to Calvary. 
lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget your love for me. Lord, please, every moment of every day, lead me to Calvary. Lead me there. Lest I forget. And beloved, if you're anything like me, you're prone to forget. That's why I need the gospel preached to me every day. That's why I must understand the gospel so that I can proclaim it to myself every day. That's why I must remember not to put my trust in me, but to put my trust in Christ every day. That's why I want to sing the songs that we sing. That's why I want to pray the prayers that we pray. That's why I want to rehearse the messages that we preach. Because I want to be led back to Calvary. Listen, beloved. If you are here this morning, you know in your heart of hearts that you have forgotten. That you have come and you have come with a mind that has strayed even this week, even this morning. The grace of God is here today to lead you back to Calvary. Someone asked the question this week. They asked me, why do y'all have communion every week? <laughs> because I forget. And I need to be led back to Calvary. Oh, how good God is that he would lead us back to Christ. That I not only have the words in my ears, but I can take Christ in my hands. And not only take him in my hands, but I can take him into my mouth and taste him and be reminded that I am his and he is mine. If you are here this morning, it is God's grace to you and his love to you. He brings you now to the table. And he says, remember me. Remember me. And our prayer, our prayer should be, Lord, lead me to Calvary, lest I forget. Let us pray. Heavenly Father,